Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. This is our next to last sermon in the book of Colossians. We'll finish the book, Lord willing, next week. This morning we'll be in Colossians chapter 4. We're going to read verse 7. Then we're going to skip ahead and read verses 16 through 18. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. You know, growing up, we learned songs that taught us, if you have a church background, that taught us that the Bible is a special book. Songs like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. One of the first songs we learned growing up. Another song we learned was the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the That's right, the special songs to teach that the Bible is a special book. And even though we learned that growing up in church, it's easy to get to a place in your Christian life where you begin to take the Bible for granted. And we're going to see some things in our text this morning that are going to remind us of how special a book the Bible is. As a matter of fact, we're going to answer the question, how did we get the Bible? How did we get to the point where we are holding our Bibles in our hands or swiping our Bibles on our iPads? How did we get to this point? Well, I'm going to share that with you this morning. So if you're physically able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Then fast forward down to verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, it has been good to sing of your love. It has been good to sing of the gospel. That you left the splendor, Lord Jesus, of glory. You left the unceasing worship of heaven to come to this earth and endure ridicule and shame and mocking and great suffering. We're grateful today, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross of your own volition. You allowed yourself to be nailed to that tree. You hung there from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, bearing the sins of the world. You took the punishment that we deserve. You, as our sinless substitute, died in our place. What amazing love. And then... And then, 
you were buried. And early on Sunday morning, you rose from the dead. You defeated death itself. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Lord Jesus, you have won the victory. You have saved us. And we are so grateful today. And Lord, even as I say those things about you, as I glory in the gospel, I understand that we know those things because you have spoken to us. We know the gospel because you have spoken to us in your word. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for the times when we have taken your word for granted. And I pray that you would show us anew and afresh just how special this book is. And work in our lives a deepening, growing, ever-increasing hunger for the word of God. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. Lord, establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Paul wrote the book of Colossians in the first century A.D. He was in prison, and he wrote a letter to the church, the Christians, in the city of Colossae. Colossae was in the Lycus River Valley in Asia Minor close to Laodicea, close to Hierapolis. And Paul's writing a letter to them to address some concerns that he had and to commend them in terms of some things he'd heard that were encouraging. And so he's writing this letter to remind them of the ministry, the work, the grace of Jesus Christ, and calling them to follow Jesus and stay away from false teaching. And as he prepares to close down this letter, he says some things that give us some great insight into the Bible, into the Word of God, the the Bibles that we hold in our hands this morning. And we see developing in this chapter some insight as to how we got the Bible. How did we get the Bible? Where did the Bible come from? Well, I want to answer that question this morning. So there are four answers To this question, how did we get the Bible? Four words. I want you to follow along with me in your notes. Number one, how do we get the Bible? Inspiration. Inspiration. Look what the Bible says there in Colossians 4, verse 18. The last verse in this book, last phrase in this letter. Paul says, I, Paul... Write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And so we see here that Paul is signing his letter. He wants them to understand he is the one writing this letter, which lines up with Colossians 1 verse 1, where Paul introduces the writer of the letter as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. But by signing the letter at the end of verse uh, chapter 4, He's indicating he is the primary writer of this letter. So, who wrote the book of Colossians? Uh, Paul wrote the book of Colossians, but that's not the complete story. You see, Paul was writing down in this letter exactly what God wanted him to write down. 
Let, let me give you a very important statement about the Bible. And it's in your notes. The Bible was given by God through the instrumentality of man. The Bible was given by God through the instrumentality of man. And so Paul was a, an instrument, and God was giving us his word through the instrument of Paul. So wait, is that taught in the scriptures? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God. And that word inspired is an interesting word. It's the word theonoustos. It's a compound word. Theos speaks of God. Noustos speaks of breath. And so when you put those two words together, that, that word is literally all Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. And so God breathed through human instruments. So when they were writing down the words that we call the Bible, they were writing the very Word of God at a at a past church where I was, I was pastoring. I remember I was, I was a brand new to the pastorate, young man, just had a few seminary classes under my belt. And my wife was out of town. She was visiting family in Florida. I remember a group of folks wanted to take me out to lunch after the, the service on that Sunday. And I thought they were just being nice, but what was really happening is they wanted to set the young preacher straight. I was preaching about the Bible being the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And so they took me out to lunch. We were eating catfish. I'll never forget it. And a lady across the table said, said, Brother Wade, she said, you know, I believe the Bible was inspired. Sort of like, you know, Picasso was inspired to paint a painting. Or a certain musician was inspired to write a song or a piece of music. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, I'd had just enough Greek to know that the word in 2 Timothy 3.16 is not inspired like, you know, Garth Brooks was inspired to write a country song. It was inspired in the sense of it was breathed out by God. Big difference, right? Big difference. And I knew just enough Greek to say, no, the word inspired means God breathed it out. And they said, okay. No more problem. It's an important word. For all scripture is breathed out by God and it says profitable for reproof, rebuke, correction, for training in righteousness. Look what it says over in 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn there with me very quickly. 2 Peter chapter 1. It's an extraordinary passage of scripture. 2 Peter Chapter 1, look in verse 16. This is the Apostle Peter writing. He had spent time with Jesus. It says there, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I read this morning in the Gospel of Mark how Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John, and they saw Jesus transfigured before them. His, his garments were whiter than any man could make them, and he was shining in his transcendence. The, 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 the veil had been lifted from the person of Jesus, and they saw him in all his glory. And Peter re, is reminded of that story. I was on the mountain. I saw him in his glory. Look what he says. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, 
for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's saying, I remember that time I was on the mountain. I saw him transfigured. I heard the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter's saying, I have experienced something great. But look what he says next. This is striking. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You know what he's saying there? Peter's saying, but we have something that's more sure, more confirmed than my experience. Hey, quick insight, you ready? The word of God always trumps spiritual experience. He's asked something more sure, more confirmed. Because I'm prone to maybe forget what happened on the mountain or misunderstand what happened on the mountain or misinterpret what happened on the mountain. But we have a sure word that we can stand on that's more sure than my experience. Look what he says. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, That no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, what we have in the Bible is not just a bunch of men writing down their religious opinions. Look what he says next. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, watch this, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Paul was writing this letter that we call Colossians, but as he was writing, he was being carried along by the Spirit of God. So he was writing down the very words of God. Now let me show you something that Peter says about Scripture. Look in chapter 3 of this same book. Chapter 3, verse 15, Peter writes, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So he's saying, not only am I writing this letter to you, there's some other letters out there that, that are circulating through the church written by the apostle Paul. And look what he says. He, does, uh, he, he wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, in his letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So notice here that Peter says Paul wrote down the word of God because wisdom was given to him to write it down. And And he puts Paul's letters on the level of Scripture. They twist his words like they do the other Scriptures. So here, the Apostle Peter is calling the Apostle Paul's letters Scripture. that exciting? So what is the book of Colossians? It is Scripture. It is the very Word of God. Yes, Paul wrote it with his hand, but he was being breathed through by God. So that when he wrote these letters down, he was writing down the very word of God. And so we hold as Bible-believing Christians to the doctrine of, of inspiration, God breathing through human instruments. As a matter of fact, we hold to the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. You may want to drop that phrase down, verbal plenary inspiration. The term verbal means every word is inspired. D- did you hear me? We believe... That every word 
is inspired by God. So every word is important. Wade, why do you preach line by line, verse by verse? Because we believe that every word is important. We don't just discern that some words are more important than others. Every word's important. Verbal, the word plenary means full. It means that every part of Scripture is equally inspired. Every part of Scripture is equally inspired. So some people say, well, you know, John 3.16, that's inspired. That's from God because it talks about God's love and God's salvation. But you know, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and all this Adam and Eve stuff, and you know, that, that, I don't know if that's inspired. Or Jonah and the fish, I don't, I don't know if that's inspired. That's a fable. That, that's a myth. And so people try to kind of pick and choose. They say, this part over here is inspired. This part over here is not. But we hold to verbal plenary inspiration that says we believe from Genesis to Revelation it's all breathed out by God. So wait, do you really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish? Absolutely. Do you really believe there was a literal man and woman named Adam and Eve? Absolutely. The Bible tells me so. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in bodily form forever to reign? Yes, I do. It's in the Word of God. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Now, here's the deal. If God breathed out His Word, this is true. If Paul was writing Colossians and God was breathing through him to write down His words, then it is without error. Because if God speaks, He doesn't make mistakes. Amen? We hold not only to the inspiration of Scripture, we hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. That, that the Bible is truth, listen, with no mixture of error. And though the Bible has been under attack for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, guess what? It keeps on proving itself. It, it stands up against the assault of modernism and liberalism, and it proves itself over and over again that it is truth with no error. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great English preacher, actually he's Welsh, but he's preached in London, England in the middle part of the 20th century, wrote this. Verbal inspiration means that the Holy Spirit, I love this, has thus overruled and controlled and guided these men, even in the choices of particular words, in such a way as to prevent any error, and above all, to produce the result that was originally intended by God. Now, God used the vocabulary that was available to these different writers. He used their experiences. He used their personalities. But he made sure that in the process of writing down the words that we call the Bible, they were writing down his word. Truth with no mixture of error. So listen to me. The word of God, breathed out by God through men, is the foundation of the church. It's the foundation of the church. Look what the Bible says over in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we'll back up to verse 19, he says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he says there that, that you as a, as a body of believers, the church, are being built upon the firm foundation of the teaching of the apostles and prophets which is the Bible. God was using apostles, using prophets to write down 
His very word. How do we get the Bible? Inspiration. God had to get His words down before we could live by them and build our lives upon them. But here's the second word that answers how we got the Bible. Not only inspiration, but distribution. Distribution. Look what the Bible says there back in Colossians 4, verse 7. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. And so we see here that Tychicus is the messenger sent from Paul, who was in prison in Rome when he wrote this, and he comes to bring them this letter that we call the book of Colossians. Now, we know from the Bible that Tychicus was a faithful messenger, a faithful messenger. Acts chapter 20, verse 4, he's called one of the Asians. That was a a, a companion of Paul in his missionary endeavors. He's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Ephesians 6.21, as being sent to different churches. Ephesians 6, he's sent to the church in Ephesus to give them the letter we call Ephesians. And so Paul wrote the letters in jail, some of the letters, and he, and he sent these letters by faithful messengers to churches so they could read them and learn them and believe them and, and let them guide their practice. You see, the Gospels and the writings of the Apostles began to be circulated throughout the first century church. That's what happened. They would write, Peter would write his letters, Paul would write his letters, you know, Matthew wrote his Gospel, Mark wrote his Gospel, Luke wrote his Gospel. At the end of the first century, John wrote his Gospel. And these letters and Gospels began to be circulated throughout the churches that were popping up all over the Roman Empire. They were circulated, they were distributed, they would be delivered read by the church, copied and passed on. Look what it says in verse 16. When this letter has been read among you, so Paul says, I want you to, I want you to read it. I want you to read this letter to the church. When it's been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodicean. So pass it on. Now we know from church history that these churches did not just pass them on, they made a copy of them first and probably sent on a copy. So pass them on to the church of the Laodiceans distribution. They would be delivered, read, copied, and passed on. So by the end of the first century, into the second century, there were hundreds and even thousands of copies of the original manuscripts written by the apostles or those who directly knew the apostles. You see, the gospel accounts and the epistles served as the final authority for faith and practice in churches. The gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the epistles, they were, they were meant to be the final authority for what churches believed and how churches served the Lord, how they functioned as individual bodies of believers. Now listen to me. If the first century church used the Bible as the foundation for faith and practice, shouldn't we do the same thing? Shouldn't, we, shouldn't the Bible be the foundation for what we believe and how we serve the Lord and what we do? It is our foundation. But the Word of God had to be written, breathed out by men, then it had to be distributed. Remember, this is before the days of UPS or FedEx or the postal services, way before all of that. 
And it was dangerous to travel. There were bandits and robbers, and, and, and it, was a, it was not a sure thing that the letter was going to get from Rome to Colossae. But it seems there was an invisible hand guiding this process, doesn't it? So that this letter made it to Colossae, distribution. Here's the third word that explains how we got the Bible. Inspiration, distribution, but third, preservation. Preservation. Look back with me in Colossians. Verse 16. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul wrote another letter to Laodicea? But in our Bible, we have the book of Colossians, but we don't have the book of the Laodiceans, do we? Why is that? There are two letters. Read this letter and pass on to Laodicea, and then they're going to send a letter over to you. You read it in your church. Why do we have one but not the other? Here's the simple answer for that. God doesn't want us to have both. God inspired the book of Colossians and wants us to have the book of Colossians. He didn't want us to have the book of Laodicea, uh, to the Laodiceans, the letter Laodiceans, so he did not preserve it. Now, there is a letter to Laodiceans, but it was written like in the 4th century. It's been shown as being spurious and not authentic. But, but that letter that Paul wrote to Laodicea it is not in existence today. It's, it's not there. It, it's not been preserved by God because God didn't want us to have it. He wanted us to have Colossians, but not this other leather, letter. You see, the writings that God inspired and wants us to believe and obey, he preserved through the ages. The act of inspiration is a miracle, and the act of preservation is a miracle. That these ancient documents that were written in the first century are still with us today. I'm preaching to you from first century documents. Isn't that awesome? And we have them clearly, and they're reliable. They've been preserved by God. God has preserved his word through the years so that we can know our Bibles are Reliable. We have in our Bibles exactly what God wanted us to have. The work of preservation. Preservation. We have a hard time preserving anything, don't we? I remember uh, an exercise. I was at a, a leadership um, training uh, weekend when I was a teenager. And it was, they had some kind of low ropes courses and team building exercises and they gave us an egg at the beginning of, of, the, of the weekend. And our job was to preserve that egg, to keep it safe through the weekend. So we had to do all of our team building leadership exercises, but we also had to take care of this egg. I don't know why they did that, but that's what they did, all right? Um, there was somebody else there at that leadership training. Her name was Claire Knowles, who's now my lovely wife. And, and I'll never forget, we got to the last day, and she was standing there, and she was, she was putting, you know, she had her blankets and things that, from her cabin, and she, was, and she was holding them in her arms, she's getting ready to, to uh, put them back in the, the vehicle we're about to leave, and, uh, and I had that egg that I preserved all weekend long, and I don't, I don't know if, I was, if, if flirtation came over me, I don't know what happened, but, but I, I, I just, I said, here, clear, clear catch, and I threw up the egg, and her hands were full, and it landed on her blankets and broke all over her stuff. And she still married me. Isn't that awesome? 
But here's my point. I have a hard time preserving something over a weekend. Right? But God has preserved His Word through hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years so that what we have here is the very Word of God. Preservation. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see. How do we get the Bible? Inspiration. Distribution. Preservation. But fourth, collection. Collection. First, God's Word was written by men... God breathing through them to write down what he wanted them to write down. Then copies were made. Then the books were organized into what we call the Bible or the canon of Scripture. If you look there in your notes, the canon of Scripture is the collection of books that were recognized by the early church as being inspired by God. Now I want you to understand that the early church leaders did not give the books their authority. They simply recognized their authority. They had a criteria, and they would apply that criteria to different books and say, this book has proven itself as being inspired by God. And and if we take this criteria and put it on another letter over here, this letter does not meet that criteria as being inspired by God. So the early church did not have the ultimate authority the Word of God did. The early church just recognized the authority of the inspired books. You see, the canon is a list of authoritative books more than it is an authoritative list of books. It's a list of authoritative books inspired by God. They applied criteria to the different writings to assess which books were truly inspired by God. Now, here's the major test. Because by the time you got to the 2nd century, the 3rd the, the century, there were all sorts of documents floating around the church. Some were letters of Paul or Peter, the Gospels. There were other letters out there that were religious in content. So they began to say, okay, which of these is truly the Word of God? Which of these have truly been inspired by God? And here was the criteria they used to evaluate all these different religious writings. The major tests for a book to be recognized as God-breathed was that it was apostolic. Apostolic that it was either written by an apostle in the first century or by someone who directly interviewed an apostle, like the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, but he spent time with Paul. He spent time with Peter. Most scholars think that his Gospel was basically an interview of the apostle Peter. So it, it had to be apostolic in nature. The early church knew which books were written by the apostles or confirmed by the apostles. How did they know? Because there was this unbroken chain of testimony from the apostles to the early church fathers. So think about the apostle John. Remember John? He died uh, in exile on Patmos. He wrote the book of Revelation, wrote the Gospel of John, wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He had a, a disciple named Polycarp. And Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus. And Polycarp and Irenaeus, in their different writings quote, 23 of the 27 books we have in our New Testament. So they, directly from the lineage of the Apostle John, recognized these books, 23 of the 27, as being directly from God. God breathed, inspired by God. Irenaeus also explicitly affirms the authorship of all four Gospels. And in 367 AD, Athanasius, an early church scholar, 
gave us our earliest list of all 27 books together. So by that time, all 27 books in the New Testament were affirmed as being from God in the early church, inspired by God. And then there was this big church council in 393 AD, and the Council of Hippo is what it's called, and, and the church got together and, and applied these criteria and said these 27 books meet the test of being apostolic. They are directly from God. So here, here's what you need to understand. I know that's a lot of history, but l- just listen to this. All 27 New Testament books, Matthew through Revelation, were written in the first century by eyewitnesses, apostles, or those who interviewed eyewitnesses or apostles. So we have assurance that these 27 books are from God, breathed out by God through human instruments. You say, wait, what about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament's easy. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. So if he affirmed it, I affirm it. Amen? The Old Testament's from God. But here, here's what I want you to understand. Since there are no other apostolic works that, that are known to exist, and because it is unlikely that God will, would allow an authentic work to go undiscovered this long, we can rest assured the New Testament canon is complete. What we have here is the complete Word of God. We have in our Bibles, listen, exactly what God wants us to have. That's the canon of Scripture. Now listen to what Wayne Grudem says. We're going to close down here in a moment. Listen to what Wayne Grudem writes. Just as God was at work in creation, in the calling of his people Israel, in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and in the early work and writings of the apostles, so God was at work in the preservation and assembling together of the books of Scripture for the benefit of his people for the entire church age. Ultimately then, We base our confidence in the correctness of our present canon on the faithfulness of God. In other words, not only did God speak in the first century, but he was at work through the centuries to preserve the word of God so we have the word of God today. Isn't that awesome? God didn't just do his thing in the first century and say, okay, good luck, hope you get the right books. No, God was actively involved in in the writing, in the distribution in the collection, in the preservation. So we have, with assurance, the Word of God today. Now let me give you some application. Number one, you can have confidence in the reliability of Scripture. Genesis to Revelation is the very Word of God. We see God's hand in writing it. We see God's hand in distributing it. We see God's hand in preserving it. We see God's hand in collecting it. God's hand is on the Word of God. And we can have confidence in the reliability of Scripture. Our Bibles are the very Word of God. Number two, you can have confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. I want you to hear me carefully. Don't miss this. If this Bible is what God wanted us to have, then this Bible must be enough for what we need. I don't, I don't think you heard what I just said. If this Bible is what God wanted us to have, it must be enough for what we need. It is sufficient. It's sufficient to find salvation in Christ. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's sufficient 
to walk with God and to love God and to live for the glory of God, it's sufficient in your marriage. It's sufficient in your parenting. It's sufficient in your church. The Bible is sufficient. It's all that we have and it is all that we need from God. Amen? It's sufficient. And then third, in order to glorify God, you should cherish. Everyone say cherish. You should cherish, learn, and obey the word of God. In order to glorify God, you should cherish, learn, and obey the word of God. Paul had no expectation that the believers of Colossae would ball up the, the letter from Paul and throw it in a waste bin. They, he had an expectation they would copy it and learn it and study it and live it. We should cherish, learn, and obey the word of God. Consider Psalm 119, verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wondrous works. Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, even fine gold. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus answered Satan. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If our Bible is reliable, if our Bible is sufficient, and it is, we should cherish it. We should love His Word. We should study it. We should obey it. It's easy to begin to take your Bible for granted, isn't it? But Colossians reminds us how special this book is is i want to show you a video it's a very brief video of some christians in china getting a bible for the very first time watch this video
They weren't taking the word of God for granted, were they? They knew the Bible. They were receiving for the very first time was a special book from God. Do you understand that as well? 